Good morning. So we've made it through our first week of our one journey. And hopefully most of you guys are excited about that. I know I'm excited and the rest of the staff's excited, but we also recognize that some of you are not as excited as we might be about it. And for some of you, you're actually surprised that the church is still standing and has made it through the transition. And that's okay, because it doesn't matter where you are on the journey. We love you. And the important thing is that we're all back together again today. Because after all, it's only the second week of one. And what research would suggest is that on average, it takes 66 days to form a new habit. So it's okay if this is still uncomfortable for some of us because it's still new and we're still learning and we're still figuring it out in all honesty. And to be perfectly honest, we've made some missteps over the past week in our one journey. And that's okay too because it's going to take some time and we're all gonna get better at it as we keep working through the process, if we do it together. And that's the only way we can do it. The only way we can succeed on this journey is if we do it together. Because it simply won't work any other way. Last week, we made our New Year's resolution and we resolved to begin this new chapter in our journey as a church. This chapter in which together we will endeavor to reach a changing community and a next generation with the message of Jesus Christ. And we needed to make that resolution because just like in our display over the years, the formats that we've used to listen to music have changed from generation to generation, from record players to A-tracks to cassette tapes to CDs, to MP3 players, and now somehow the music just floats around and ends up on my phone, and I don't quite know how it works, but I really love it, because it all gets there. But just like the way we've changed listening to music, we need to change the format of our message if it's going to be heard by a generation that listens very differently. And so here we are in week two. We've taken the first step, but now we must take the second step. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but think about it. If you made your own personal New Year's resolution this year, how's it going? Is it fading a little bit into the background? If you go to the gym regularly, then like me, if you showed up last Monday, you noticed a lot of new faces around you at the gym, people you didn't recognize. And it was a little more crowded than you were used to. But by Friday, it was starting to feel back to normal. A lot of those new faces had disappeared. And that's not really a surprise. Because we can't change a habit with just a few days of willpower. Our nature wants us to stay right where we are and we fight to protect our routines. Let's face it, if change were easy, everybody would do it. And so if we're going to be successful in our change journey, we're going to need some help. We're going to need a guide. And the guide for our journey towards one is found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And our help 
is going to come from each other in our life groups, in our other small gathers, where we can help each other process what we're learning, process our doctrine, process biblical truth, and apply it to our everyday lives. In the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle lays out God's plan for us to become one church with one purpose. In these six verses, we find God's plan for unity, which is what is necessary if we're going to reach a changing community in a next generation with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And because change takes commitment, and because change takes time, we're going to be spending a few weeks digging deeply into these verses. And so what I'd actually like us to do is I'd like us to stand together as one church and read these verses together. So please stand. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worth the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So what we find is that church renewal and community renewal are only possible when we have unity. And as we saw last week, our unity must flow out of our doctrine. Our unity must flow out of our faith. And our unity must flow out of the restored peace that we can only find in Jesus Christ. And what we find in these six verses, especially in the second half in verses four to six, is one of the most concise yet deep renderings of church doctrine found in the entire New Testament. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 3, and as we looked at verses 1 to 3, what we mostly answered was a what question. What should we be doing if we want to have unity in our body? And what we saw was that if we want to have unity, we need to be completely humble, gentle or meek, patient, and loving. And that's a pretty tall order, if we're honest. To be completely, all the time, no matter who we are dealing with, no matter what the situation is, be completely humble, gentle, patient, and loving. It can be overwhelming to think about. And frankly, on our own, without the power of the Holy Spirit, who we're going to deal with next week, it's frankly an impossible task. But that is what we must strive for. That is what we must do. And sometimes we just have to do what we're told to do. But doing what we're told to do sometimes isn't that easy. What makes doing what we're told to do just a little bit easier? Knowing why we need to do something. 
So as most of you know, my son Micah is six. And for the past, I don't know, six months or so, we've been going through the why phase. Doesn't matter what we ask him to do or what we're doing, why? Why do I have to do this? Why are we doing that? Why can't we do this? Why are you doing this? Why, why, why? And because I'm a great father, my answer is because I said so, just do it. That is my answer sometimes, but what we're trying to work with him in is to understand when it's appropriate to ask why. When I get you out of the car in the parking lot and I say, hold my hand because there's traffic, it is not the time to ask me why. But later on when we're at home and I have the time to sit down with you on the couch and I can explain to you that cars can kill you then it's okay to ask me why. So there's a time and a place where we get to ask why. But when we understand the why behind the what, it's far easier for us to do the what's. It's true for our kids, and it's true for us. And so that's the question that we're going to begin exploring today. Why do we need to be humble? and gentle, and patient, and loving. Because when we better understand the why, it'll be easier for us to do the what. When we better understand the whys, we'll be more willing, and we will do the what's with more enthusiasm. When we better understand the whys, then the what will move from just rote obedience to a heartfelt desire to follow. When we better understand the whys, we'll be able to better focus into the future. And when we better understand the whys, then it will be easier for us to make hard decisions and sacrifices. So why? Why do we need to be completely humble and gentle and patient and loving? Well, in verses 4 to 6, the apostle doesn't just give us a concise doctrine of the church. He actually also gives us an answer to this why question. And the answer comes in the form of those seven one statements which we recited together. And those are the statements we're going to be journeying through over the next several weeks. And the first answer to the why question that we find is we need to be completely gentle and humble, and patient, and loving, because we are one body. The human body is Paul's favorite metaphor for describing the church, and how the church is supposed to function. And the concept of the unity of the body is really the heartbeat of the book of Ephesians. Much like a composer will introduce themes in the overture of a musical that they will then expand on as the musical continues. The apostle introduces this concept of the body early in the first chapter, and then he continues to expand on it as the letter continues, in this letter and several of his other letters that he writes. And in Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, we read, And God placed all things under his, Christ's feet, and appointed him, Christ, to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
And so the first thing that we see about being one body is that we aren't in charge of the body. Just like the head controls what our physical bodies do, Paul says that Christ is the head of our spiritual body. Christ is the head of our church. So what we see is that it's not about what any one of us wants the church to do, or what any one of us wants the church to go. What it's about is what Christ's purpose is for our church. And Christ's purpose for our church has not changed generation after generation for 126 years. Christ's purpose for our church is to reach a changing culture in the next generation with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that we understand about our one body is that Christ is in charge. And then Paul continues unpacking this concept in chapter 2, where he writes, For he himself, Christ again, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And there's a couple key things that we need to see from this passage. And the first is what it means to be a member or a part of the body of Christ or his church. And to become a member or a part of his body is only possible by placing our faith in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Because it's Christ who reconciles us to God through his work on the cross. There's nothing that we have done, nothing that we can do to gain membership in the church, except to believe in the work of Christ on our behalf. We must each accept that our relationship with God has been broken by our sin. And we must accept the sacrifice on Christ, of Christ on our behalf as the payment for our brokenness, as the payment for our sinfulness. That is the only way that we can become part of his body. That is the only way that we can become part of his church. And if you're here today just beginning to explore Christianity, just trying to learn more about God and what it means to have a relationship with him, that's awesome. We are so glad that you're here. You're welcome here. We want you to think of yourself as being at home. We want you to ask your questions. We want you to explore. But we want you to understand that most of what we're talking about today doesn't actually apply to you. So what we want you to do is learn. We want you to learn about what, how the body of Christ is supposed to function and be our guest. You're like a dinner guest at a party. Just sit back and let us serve you. But if you're here and you have placed your faith in Christ, then you are part of his universal church and you are part of the local church. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you're supposed to be part, a functioning part of the local church 
which means doing more than just showing up on Sunday and being served. So the first thing that we see from this passage is what it means to be a member in Christ's church and how we become a member in Christ's church. And the second thing that we see in this passage is diversity. We see that not only has the work of Christ destroyed the barrier that separated us from God, but the work of Christ has also destroyed the barrier that separates us from one another. This is the, the restoration of the shalom peace that we spent the Advent season talking about. And as individuals from different backgrounds and different races, we have been called and saved and brought together into one body. The Bible says that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer male or female. There is no longer slave or free. And what that means for us is that there is no rich or poor. There is no white or black or Hispanic or Indian or Asian. There is no young or old. There is no married or single. The unity of the body that Paul is calling us to is not uniformity. It's a unity that requires great diversity. All believers everywhere are members of the universal church. And all members of the universal church are called to be functioning members of the local church, committed to its purposes and its healthy functioning. Because we are one body. And let's just touch on the universal church briefly because there's a couple things that we can learn from the universal church and the concept of the universal church and apply to our local church. So the first thing that we can apply from the global church is that because we are a global church, we have to recognize that other churches who believe like we believe are not our enemy. We are not in competition with any other churches. There are plenty of lost people out there for all of us. And it takes all of us working together in concert to reach them. What our competition is, is all of the things in our society that would seek to distract us from God and God's purposes. And the second thing that the diversity of the global church helps us with is it helps us understand where our cultural preferences may be causing problems for us in the unity of our local church. Let's think about worship styles. When we think about worship styles in the global church. When we think about worship styles in the global church, it will help us tremendously with the journey that we are on. Because just like our music formats have changed over the years from records all the way to the cloud, worship styles change as generations change. Worship styles change as culture changes. And there is no right, there is no right or wrong style of worship. There is a right thing to worship. There is a right message of our worship. But there is no right or wrong style of worship. So let's just have a real honest conversation. And let's just rip the band-aid off. Right. If you're concerned, 
because over the past two weeks, we haven't yet used the piano or the organ, and you think we've somehow transgressed sacred worship. Or if you come from a very contemporary worship background, and you're wondering why nobody has yet sat behind the drum kit, because that has transgressed what worship means for you. Let's take a moment and think about our brothers and sisters who worship in the tribal countries of Kenya, where they worship with either no instruments or at most a single drum. I don't believe any of us would say that their worship is invalid, that their worship violates some sacred code of worship. And we can't fall into the trap of saying, well, the only reason they worship that way is because they just don't have the money for the piano or the organ. Because that's not true. Even if they had the money for the piano or the organ, they wouldn't worship with it because it's not culturally relevant to them. And so what we see is that as we seek to reach a changing culture, we must change our message and communicate, not change our message, we must communicate a timeless message in a way that is culturally relevant so that it can be heard. Because if we're going to reach a next generation with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ, they need to be able to hear us. And so here's the thing. We are individualistic by both nature and most certainly by culture. In most of our troubles with the church, in fact, most of our troubles that we just have in life, typically arise from the fact that we are persistently obsessed with ourselves. We live in a completely individualistic society, and as a result, we have a tendency to think about our spirituality first and foremost as an individualistic exercise. And when our worship experiences or our spiritual experiences don't match our individual preferences, our knee-jerk reaction is to think of them as wrong. And frankly, it's not a new issue because sin at its very core is self-centeredness. Sin puts man at the center and sin makes us feel like we alone or those closest to us are the most important and that our preferences should be met. Our sin nature, our self-centeredness, causes us to ask questions like, well, what does this church have for me? We spend our time thinking about ourselves and our personal interests, but what we see is that this train of thought is completely contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. The New Testament teaching on the body of Christ and the New Testament teaching on worship creates this beautiful picture that places ourselves into the church. Not from a posture of what do we get from the church, but instead asking the question of what do we give to the church? How do we participate in its purposes? How do we participate in Christ's design for the church? Because our worship is not about what we get. 
Our worship is supposed to be about what we bring to God. And there's a beauty that is created when we begin to see things this way, when we begin to see the church this way, when we begin to see ourselves in our local church as part of God's much bigger purposes and what he's doing in the world. The passage says there is one body. It doesn't say you need to build one body or I want you guys to try and make one body. It says there is one body. And what it says is it's our job not to break the body. It's our job not to break the unity. Paul's challenge to us is to endeavor to keep the unity, to guard the unity, to safeguard the unity. It's not as much an, an appeal for us to come together as one as much, much as it's an urging for us to be careful not to do anything that would cause a division in the body. And frankly, the way that we manage the local church, especially in our congregational form of government, can really undermine the nature of the one-body concept of Scripture if we're not careful. Because think about what we do. We welcome somebody into membership and we bring them up front and we say, meet the new members and congratulate them. And then all of a sudden we create this divide between the old members and the new members. And the old members who have been here for a long time say, well, you don't know enough about us yet to participate. Just let us run the church and you just sit there. But the Bible says there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no new or old. We are one body. And this is why Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10-13, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you will agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought, my brothers and sisters. Because some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. In another, well, I follow Apollos. In another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And what we see is that from the earliest time of the church, divisions have plagued it because they were dividing over leaders and preferences. Divisions were plaguing them because they were thinking of themselves as individuals instead of thinking of themselves as a unified body of Christ. This is why Paul loves the concept of the body as a metaphor for the church. Because the body is designed so beautifully and perfectly. The human body is the most complicated physical structure ever imagined. Structure we don't even completely understand despite all of our science and our technology. Each part has a different and unique function that plays a critical role in our bodies working. There's no part of us that's unimportant. There's no part that's not essential. And what can be accomplished 
when our entire body functions as one is simply remarkable. Let's watch this video clip. So Katie Ledecky, she is the greatest freestyle swimmer in history. She is unparalleled. She wins at short distances and she wins at long distances. And as you saw in the clip, she was only racing herself. There was nobody else even in the frame of the picture by the end of the race. And those are Olympians. And she's capable of doing that because every fiber of her body is completely unified in its purpose and in its goal. And imagine, what could we accomplish as a church if every part of us, if every fiber of us was completely unified for Christ's purpose for us. But what happens? Instead of working in complete harmony, if the various parts of our body start to work against each other, if instead of working towards the same purpose, they start working towards their own goals. Let's watch this clip. <laughs> and it's funny, it really is until we realize that our realities are probably far more like Steve Martin than they are like Katie Ledecky. In the 12th chapter of his letter to the Colossians, which we read earlier in the service, Paul goes into great detail about how we are supposed to function if we're going to be one united body. I'm just going to briefly pull a couple points out of that passage. This is the first thing that the diversity among the members is essential if there's going to be a unified body. Because if all of us were the same, if we were seeking after unanimity, we wouldn't actually be able to accomplish our purposes. So think about the piano. If I brought the piano tuner in and I asked him to make all of the strings in the piano the exact same length, it would still look like a piano but it would have 88 notes that sounded exactly the same. And it would no longer be able to fulfill its purposes as a piano. If we're going to fulfill our purposes as a church, it will take the unity of our diversity working together. One function, one body that correctly functions with each of its parts working in harmony. But to be one unified body, we also must each be willing to play our parts. And we need to value those who play different parts than we do. Because the different functions and the members are all vitally important. There are no inferior members. There are no inferior roles in the body of Christ. God has constructed both our human bodies and our spiritual bodies so that our various parts can care for each other. If you've ever had a toothache or a broken toe, you recognize how even what we, parts we typically don't think much about, when they're hurting, can keep us from functioning correctly. And so the body is designed to care for itself. On a Sunday morning, the role I play is no more important than the role Donna or Eric or the rest of the band plays. And the role any of us up here play is no more important than all the people sitting up there that you can't see 
that make sure you can see and hear us. And the roles that they play are no more important than those who greet you and pass out bulletins and make the coffee. And the roles that they play are no more important than those who are volunteering to teach our kids and our youth. And the roles that they play are no more important than those who come and volunteer to paint our walls and to fix the things that go wrong in our building. And the roles that they play are no more important than those who stock our food pantry and volunteer in our ESL ministry or with our Family Promise Homeless Shelter. And the roles that they play are no more important than those who make meals for people who are sick or visit people in the hospital. And on and on and on. There is no priority in our roles. But it takes each of us doing our role, fulfilling the role God has given us to do if our church is going to function appropriately. If we are going to function as one body and achieve the purposes that God has called us to. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as we continue our journey towards one is, are we going to be like Katie Ledecky or are we going to be like Steve Martin? Will we each play our part? Will we each care for one another? Will we each value one another? Will we each work together in humility and gentleness and patience and love? Because I think if we will, we will be amazed at what God will accomplish through His church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You have called us to be part of Your purposes. I thank You for Your church. It's a design none of us would have come up for if we're honest. But it is the design that You've given us. And You love it. And You've called us to love it. And You've called us to be part of it and to serve it and to serve through it. And I pray that that would be our commitment and that that would be our continuing resolution. In Jesus' name, amen.